Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the National Library of Australia. As I commence, I'd like to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we meet and pay my respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, past, present and emerging. I'm Kevin Bradley, Assistant Director General at the National Library of Australia, responsible for Australian collections and reader services. And it's my pleasure to have the duty to welcome, to you, uh, welcome you to tonight's fellowship presentation by Dr. Ellen Smith. The fellowship program, who is standing just behind me in case you're wondering, uh, the fellowship program brings an extraordinary range of researchers to our reading rooms who all contribute to the library's vision to collect, connect and collaborate. And we are grateful to the donors whose generous support enables us to offer such unique opportunities. Offering researchers and scholars the time to interrogate the collections and make discoveries is one of the great benefits of the fellowships. Often it leads to insights that have taken fellows in new directions or extended or refined their researches. Often it has led us at the library to know a little more about our collections. Ellen's fellowship has been made possible by the generosity of Ray Matthew and Eva Colesman Trust which specifically supports research in Australian literature. It will therefore come as no surprise to learn that Ellen is a literary scholar interested in the global context of Australian literature. She has held postdoctoral fellowships at Melbourne University and King's College London and taught literature and global studies at the University of Sussex. Now based in her hometown of Melbourne, she teaches gender studies and Australian literature at Deakin University. A fascination with Australian writers and writing has been a constant theme throughout her career. Her PhD considered the political context surrounding the works of Xavier Herbert, Catherine Susanna Pritchard and the Jindawarabak poets. Ellen's current research on the relationship between expatriism and queer identity looks at some of Australia's most important 20th century writers and will ultimately consider the works of Patrick White, Martin Boyd, David Maloof and Sumner Locke Elliott. But it's been the papers, of the library's papers of Randolph Stowe that have proven to be a major source of material and discovery. I won't give anything away, though I'm as captivated by the title as the rest of you. Um, and instead, I'll just welcome Ellen to tell you about what she's uncovered and where her research is leading. Please welcome Dr Ellen Smith. Um, thank you, thank you very much. All right, I'm, I'll, get, I'll get started because there's a, quite, a, quite a lot of material to get through. Um, so I, I came to the NLA to work on sexuality and expatriatism, as, as Kevin said. Uh, that is on gay Australian writers who left Australia. Um, I was interested in the mid-century period in the experience of people who were coming of age prior to gay liberation. And I had a number of people in mind who I thought fit this profile. So, so some of the names that um, Kevin just, just read to you then are Sumner Locke Elliott, Patrick White, David Maloof, uh, and Randolph Stowe. What I've ended up doing, though, in my time in the library is, is spending most of my time looking at, Randolph's, at the Randolph Stowe collection, uh, which is a rich and fascinating way to think about this story. Uh, so that's what I'm going to talk to you about today. I think it's worth saying from the outset that Stowe's story is not the familiar one about queer migration to the metropolis. Stowe never really liked the city. His queer expatriate story would start instead in the Trobriand Islands in New Guinea, and then via Leeds, Malta, 
Scotland, and an extensive tour of the United States and Alaska, uh, end in a small village in Suffolk, England, where he would spend the rest of his life. The story I want to tell you today focuses on the time that he spent in the Trobriand Islands as a young aspiring anthropologist and the way he returned to that experience throughout his life. It's a story about queer desire and the ethnographic imagination, about the way that Stowe's experience of his own sexuality took shape with and through his encounter with the Trobriand world. One of the reasons that I've, I've ended up on this particular story um, is is because the material held by the National Library is, is particularly rich around the time that Stowe spent uh, in the Trobriand Islands. Um, I've just got a list, a list here for those who are interested about, about what some of the materials of, I've, I've consulted are. So this material includes a diary, extensive field notes, a lot of letters, uh, and, it, and it's also Stowe's own archive, which he returns to again and again throughout his life in an attempt to make sense of what happened to him when he was in New Guinea. So what this means is that anecdotes um, from the diaries, anecdotes from his letters, uh, these, things, these things turn up in later novels as Stowe kind of returns to this archive of material himself um, in order to make sense of what happened to him and also in order to sort of uh, con construct his fictional worlds. I think the fact that there is more material on this Trobrian period in Stowe's life, which was actually only about six months, the, the fact that there's so much kind of uh, documentation of that period speaks to, speaks to the importance of this period in Stowe's life. Um, uh, Stowe kept these materials himself and kept returning to them. But, but this is to get ahead of ourselves, so I want to start by telling you something about who Stowe is and, and something about his work. Stowe is often thought of as one of Australia's best and most underrated 20th century novelists. He was born in 1935 in Geraldton, Western Australia. Something of a prodigy, he published his first novel, The Haunted Land, in 1956, when he was just 21. His second novel, The Bystander, followed, but it was his third novel, To the Islands, which announced him as a serious novelist. I discovered Stowe through reading To the Islands, and I've been interested in him ever since. To the Islands came out of a period that Stowe spent at Forest River Mission, an Aboriginal mission in the Kimberleys in 1957. He was 22. And it's a remarkable novel still for the way that it captures the voices of that world and grapples with the moral and political implications of colonialism and colonisation. Um, I've got a list of his key publications up, up here on the, on the PowerPoint. Stowe left Australia uh, in 1959 when he was 24. He went as a cadet patrol officer to New Guinea. At this time, New Guinea was an Australian-administered territory, as it had been since 1920. 1920 sorry. So Stowe, um, he left Australia as part of the colonial administration of New Guinea. His decision to take this job leads us back to Forest River Mission, where he wrote to the islands. Stowe was deeply moved by the time he spent there living with and among the Indigenous community, and he decided there that he wanted to train as an anthropologist. Stowe was posted to the Trobrian Islands with the government anthropologist Charles Julius. The Trobrians were famous in the world of anthropology then, as they still are now, as the subject of a series of enormously influential studies by Bronislaw Malinowski sometimes referred to as the father of anthropology. Um, anyone who's studied anthropology will have, will have read Malinowski. 
And so Stowe was pleased with this posting. Uh, this, is, this is a letter, a letter to his mother that he wrote in 1959. The Trobrians are the best part of the world anthropologically, as the best-known anthropologist, Malinowski, wrote about six books on it. I was studying it all last year. It's quite an opportunity. If I get to know it thoroughly, I'll know about half the work required for an anthropology degree and can go on to do one later. In the end, Tro's time in the Trobian Islands was personally disastrous, ending in a nervous breakdown and suicide attempt. After that, Stowe would give up on becoming an anthropologist. Instead, uh, he continued to work as a writer. But much of his work over the next 20 years would refer back to this time. Um, two of his novels, The Visitants, The Girl Green as Elderflower, a collection of poems and a series of short stories uh, can all be read as sort of attempts to work through what happened to him in the Trobian Islands and make sense of this experience. Today, I'm going to talk firstly about um, Stowe's experience in the Trobian Islands as I've reconstructed it from the documents in the library's collection. So that'll be the first section of the talk. Then secondly, I'm going to um, look at two stories written in Alaska about six years later uh, that are based on his time in the Trobians and based on Trobian myths. And uh, I'm going to argue that these are sort of queer reworkings of Trobian myths that he encountered in the Trobian Islands. I'll finish then with some brief comments about what it means to think and write about the private life of this intensely private man. Okay, so firstly, um, Stowe, Stowe and the Trobrians. When Stowe arrived in Port Moresby in March 1959, a young cadet patrol officer, he was unimpressed by the white colonial society he found there. I've decided Moresby is pretty dull, he wrote to his mother. The white population is composed of cranks and drears and the gossip is terrific. Even in our mob, we hear things about one another from complete strangers. But if Port Moresby was pointless drinking and boring gossip, the Trobrians represented something else. Malinowski's work was not only central to the discipline of anthropology, but presented new and radical ideas about sex, society, and cultural relativisms. The Trobrians would have had a glamour that fitted with Stowe's intellectual seriousness, and they were a world away from the provincial Western Australian pastoral class. Although Stowe's job was with the Australian government, he saw himself less as a colonial bureaucrat and more as an aspiring anthropologist. It was with Malinowski, rather than the other CPOs, that Stowe identified. One thing I'm going to suggest to you today is that Stowe's encounter with the Trobrian Islands can't be separated from his encounter with this so-called father of modern anthropology, Malinowski. Stowe studied Malinowski extensively in the lead-up to his post, and Malinowski is the lens through which Stowe encounters the Trobrian scene in the first instance. Malinowski's colour scheme is so right, his diary reads, brown bodies, pale grey brown houses, grey brown coconut trees. Further, Stowe will meet some of the informants who spoke to Malinowski 40 years previous, people who Stowe had already encountered in Malinowski's uh, photographs and descriptions would now become his guides and the people from whom he made his own collections of myths and spells. At several moments in his diary, Stowe describes locals poring over pictures in a copy of The Sexual Life of Savages, which he and Julius had brought with them to the Omaricana. People have been here all day, he reports, poring over the photographs in Malinowski. In the beginning, the role of the ethnographer 
as Stowe had read about it in Malinowski, suited very well the way he oriented himself towards the world, the way he saw himself. Stowe's diary from the time shows that he sees himself as an observer, and the diary itself as a record of, uh, a record of his observations of humankind. This, I think, stands in defensive opposition to any kind of introspection or self-observation. Stowe wants to look out rather than in. That's from before, that's the wrong one, yep. Stowe wants to look out rather than in. And the model he adopts in his journal is that of the anthropological field diary rather than the confessional. So Stowe will say, shouldn't always write this journal when I'm drunk. It sounds too introspective and I don't think I am. Try to analyse humans as a whole, not me. And then in the following year after the breakdown, I can't remember why I began this diary in 1959, but I will keep on with it and fill up the intervening years as I go. It was not to be introspection, a record of my perception of external things and not of myself. It's interesting, when I came across these kinds of comments from Stowe in his diary, I think um, at first I was a little bit frustrated because you know, I'm doing this work which is trying to understand something about the kind of personal and private life of this man. And so you sort of hope that the diary will have, you know, introspection and stuff about his feelings in it. But he, but he, refu he refuses this. But, but I, I, I think sort of what I, what I realised in reading his diary is that this refusal of introspection is actually, is actually key to his character in some ways. Um, Stowe, Stowe sees himself as an observer and he, he, he shies away, he shies away from self-examination. Stowe's fear of introspection as it reveals itself here, I think, should be understand, understood in relation to his sexuality. At least in part, this was probably about anxiety about homosexual desire. But I think that it's unlikely at this stage um, that Stowe saw himself as a gay man. The identity would not have presented itself to him as an option. Rather, his anxiety as it reveals itself in small slip-ups of introspection is about becoming involved in the world of emotional and sexual attachments in ways that would challenge his sense of self-sufficiency. What he would call in a poem from uh, the time, his fortress of identity. And we can note that it is his friendships with men that throw this anxiety into sharpest relief. Reflecting on his close friendship with another CPO he met in Port Moresby, Stowe says, I don't need friends. I walk by my wild lone in the wild wet woods. I think it's good to remember Stowe is only 24 here. He's very angsty. <laughs> nor do I need love, nor am I likely to get it. But love and friendship would make so many things easier, especially overcoming melancholy, inertia, ennui. On second thoughts, love is precisely what I don't want. It's too binding, too demanding. In another uh, entry, he quotes from John Donne's Elegy 9, The Autumnal, a love poem addressed to an older woman, only to castigate himself. Frigid Puritan, no life in love, he says. Stowe doesn't know how to enter the world of love and sex, another quote. Either become one of those sad people who live for a hint of friendship or renounce the human race and become a tree, he says. So I'm suggesting here that the idea of ethnography or the idea of anthropology presented itself as a solution to Stowe, allowing him to look upon and write about the world of love and sex, which he, uh, which he in a way, uh, without he himself being called to participate in it. 
If this was the case, though, being in the Trobrians was really not exactly like this. And Stowe's attachment to the position of the observer also explains something of why the... Ex uh, this explains something of why the lived experience of the Trobrian Islands was so psychologically difficult for him. Early in his time in the Trobrians, Stowe becomes aware that people are looking back. Uh, this is his first day in Americana, he comments. People are everywhere, on the steps and the road, under the house, looking up through the floorboards. They are charming, nice-looking, friendly people, very clean, very primitive in the administration sense, as the men wear only the pubic leaf and the women the short grass skirt. Already, and, and this is his first day, I think there is a tension between Stowe's cliched ethnographic perception of charming primitive natives and the dawning realisation that they might also be looking at him. This continues throughout Stowe's diary and he experiences the Trobrian gaze as a sexual intrusion. He writes to his mother, it's a bit of back-taking being watched through the floor, especially at mealtimes and when having a shower. Later in The Visitants, um, Stowe's Trobrian novel, he more explicitly imagines Trobrian women watching the white men. And this is a, a, a Trobrian woman character. I watched him in the shower through a hole in the cookhouse wall, and his ass is white like shells. All the women watch the dim-dims. Wah! Mr. Ludi has a cock as big as this. Stowe also finds himself negotiating offers of sex. He writes, The girls have arrived, as always, at this time of night to serenade me. They must imagine that going to bed with me would result in limitless gifts of tobacco. I want to pause at this point to say something about architecture, because the experience of being watched takes place uh, in and through a particular architectural space, and because architectural metaphors are crucial to the way that Stowe sees himself. This is, um, Stowe's not a particularly good photographer, but this is one of his um, photographs of Americana where he was staying. It's a village of huts raised on stilts with unsealed wooden floors. People seek shade under the house and from there can see up into the room above. So this is what Stowe is referring to when he talks about people under the floor. He's not just paranoid and imagining this. There are actually people under the floor. Um, the idea of people looking up through the floorboards disturbed Stowe particularly. It appears in the quotes above and is repeated throughout the diary and letters. For Stowe, eyes under the floor seem to suggest a gaze that can't be guarded against, coming from all angles at once, from where you yourself don't look and can't see. In The Visitants, the novel based most directly on Stowe's time in the Trobrians, Stowe uses the image of a bleeding house to represent the death of Cowder, a colonial officer who kills himself by slashing at his wrists and bodies. And, and this, draws very, um, this draws very closely on Stowe's own suicide attempt. The house for Stowe is a metaphor for the self, and the bleeding house suggests a self whose protective skin has been ruptured beyond repair. But the bleeding house in the visitants also has a more literal referent. Carter slashes at his wrists in a house on stilts, like the house that Stowe stayed in, and his blood drips down through the floorboards onto the head of a young local man resting in the shade below, who cries out in horror, the house is bleeding. 
Stoke clearly felt intruded upon by the eyes of Trobrianders and that there was nowhere he could go to escape from view. Read biographically, the bleeding house becomes a symbol of the way that in the Trobrians, in a house on stilts, with holes in the wall and holes in the roof, Stowe feels himself coming apart under a gaze that seems everywhere at once and which he experiences as carrying a sexual demand. We can compare the image of the bleeding house to that of the homestead stockade that was for Stowe a repeated metaphor for the self. Biographer Suzanne Falconer quotes a draft. Uh, this is from a draft of a poem called Sandalwood. Homestead and fortress of identity, the self-stockade. I man myself stockade. My silence like a firebreak guards my state. Stowe wrote this, quote, in a thatched hut in the village of Amarakana on the island of Kirawina, remembering sand springs. The homestead image is thrown up as a defense of privacy in a place that for Stowe seemed to offer none. Stowe's experience of sexual and scopic intrusion also posed a radical challenge to the idea of ethnographic fieldwork that he had gained through reading Malinowski. For instance, in a now notorious passage from Argonauts of the Western Pacific, Malinowski argues that by living in the village, uh, you know, right among the people, the ethnographer will become inconspicuous part of the daily life of his subjects and so unnoticed be able to witness their private lives. So, so this is Malinowski. This, this is totally wild, this passage, I reckon. Um, <laughs> it must be remembered that as the novels, the natives saw me constantly every day, they ceased to be interested or alarmed or made self-conscious by my presence and I ceased to be a disturbing element in the tribal life which I was to study, altering it by my very approach, as always happens with a newcomer to every savage community. As they knew that I would thrust my nose into everything, even where a well-mannered native would not dream of intruding, they finished by regarding me as part and parcel of their life, a necessary evil or nuisance, mitigated by no donations of tobacco. So, so Malinowski, at least in this textual construction, and I think we probably do need to read it as a textual construction and not what actually happened, um, hides in plain sight and can see without being seen. Stowe experience, Stowe's experience as we've encountered it here uh, is almost exactly the opposite of this. It's not Stowe, the ethnographer, who can poke his nose around corners to see the private life of his subjects. Rather, it's the Trobrianders whose eyes are everywhere who seem always to be overstepping the mark of politeness and privacy. There is then for Stowe in the Trobrian Islands a crumbling of the ethnographic authority represented by the figure of Malinowski. Throughout the, diary, Stowe, uh, throughout the diary, Stowe's image of Malinowski wavers. Stowe reports a conversation with the visiting anthropologist, Dr. Rio Fortune, who badmouths the ethnographer. Malinowski, he said, was a congenial liar. The sexual life of savages is a bad novel. Conrad could have done better. Functionalism is bunk. And the topic of liars remains at play. A few weeks later, his interpreter, Abraham, casts doubt on one, on one of Malinowski's key informants. Quote, Monikewu was one of Malinowski's favourite informants, and Abraham says no one in Americana ever listens to him. He's such a liar. Malinowski starts to appear to Stowe as lacking in both honesty and judgment. The idea that the ethnographic space doesn't produce reliable novel, that ethnographic authority is a textual construct, that informants might have their own agendas, is, is now pretty commonplace. It's almost a cliche. 
but it wouldn't have been to Stowe in 1959. And we see Stowe's subjective integrity crumble alongside his belief in Malinowski. There is an interesting moment when Stowe is offered a love spell by Monokewo, uh, one of Malinowski's informants who is now an old man. So this is, this is a man who'd spoken to Malinowski uh, at, you know, 40 years ago, and, and now, Stowe, um, now Stowe is speaking to. So Stowe reports. In the afternoon, Monokewu came and offered to teach me love magic to make the girls come to the rest house at night. Dirty old bastard. I did get a spell from him anyway, or perhaps only a song which is spoken by a woman who wants Monokewu to come to bed with her. It's perhaps a spell spoken by a man to induce these sentiments in the woman. I would argue that there are, in fact, two older men in this scene, two father figures. There is Monokewo, the dirty old bastard who wants to teach Stowe love magic. And there is also hovering in the background Malinowski, father of modern ethnography, for whom Monokewo was a favourite informant some 40 years earlier. Stowe here wants to identify with Malinowski, the ethnographer, and so he takes the spell down in his notebook like a good apprentice. This is also an attempt to stabilise the encounter, to keep Monokewo as an informant rather than a corrupting influence, to keep the love magic as information to be taken down in his notebook, not as something that would draw him into the world of sexual desire and exchange. But the question of sex keeps threatening to destabilise the ethnographic encounter and the fantasy of anthropological authority that Stowe had arrived with, as well as his carefully protected sense of privacy and self-sufficiency is crumbling. The spell can be found in Stowe's field notes, taken down in Kirawina with an English translation. I won't read the whole thing out here to you, but you can see it up here on the board. In the spell, there's uncertainty about where to locate the subject of desire. Like a figure in a hall of mirrors, the speaker dreams up a lover who dreams of him dreaming of her. Dreaming of you as if in person, you with me, truly you with me, you dream of me, me, Monokewu. Are you dreaming of me, Monokewu? It's an image of displaced desire, where wanting can only be produced through the lens of the other. In all of this, the identity of the speaker is also confused, and Stowe in his diary wonders whether the spell is spoken by the woman or the man, by, Mon by Monokewu or his lover. Where Stowe is in all of this, it's hard to say. But the poetic sensibility is at work in the translation, and the language he finds is that of sexual longing and loneliness. The spell will turn up again in a story Stowe writes based on the Trobrian myth of Deconican, a lonely cannibalistic ogre. I'm going to turn to that story in the second part of this presentation. Exactly what happened with Stowe's breakdown remains something of a mystery. But one night in November, Stowe would take himself to bed and then slash with a razor blade at his inner arms and throat. He was found before he bled out and taken to the Taroma Hospital in Port Moresby. Um, this, is, this is a notebook from that time, which is in the library collection. Suzanne Falconer in her biography gives a thorough account of the events that led up to this as possible, which include the death of Stowe's own father. Stowe himself, however, remains private about the experience. 
On several occasions, Stowe's writing repeats the idea that something happened in the Trobrians which must remain unspoken and unexamined. In Landfall, written in 1962, the speaker anticipates a recovery, a landfall, but the condition of this is a closely held silence. And indeed, I shall anchor one day, some summer morning of sunflowers and bougainvillea and arid winds and smoking a black cigar, one hand on the mast turn and unlaid my eyes of all their cargo. And the parrot will speed from my shoulder and white yachts glide, welcoming out from the shore of the turquoise tide. And when they ask me where, have I, where I have been, I shall say, I do not remember. And when they ask me what I have seen, I shall say, I remember nothing. And if they should ever tempt me to speak again, I shall smile and refrain. Stowe's characteristic reticence is at play here. The refusal to speak his inner world, perhaps even to himself. In Stowe's image of perpetual silence, there is the hope that one might be unburdened without confession. The, eyes, the speaker's eyes are unladen. What has been seen can be forgotten, and no speaking will ever be required. But the idea of refrain that the verse ends with also suggests a closely guarded secret. It is unclear in the end whether the past has been forgotten or simply remains unspoken and unshared. It's tempting, of course, to read the secret as homosexuality, as if this would return meaning to Stowe's breakdown in communication and fill in the silence that has been cast over these events. But the explanation feels too simple. There is some indication that rumours circulated about Stowe's sexuality in the Trobrians, although they are inconclusive. And it's hard to know whether there was a particular series of events that Stowe refused to acknowledge, or whether the crisis that he found himself in and which culminated in a suicide attempt was by its very nature a breakdown of meaning and therefore something he was unable to make sense of in language. I want to jump forward now to 1965. Stowe has been travelling in the United States and living in Alaska. He's five years older and he spent considerable time outside of Australia living in Leeds, Malta and Scotland. He's also had a love affair with the Australian novelist Russell Braddon, about 15 years older than him and much more open about his sexuality. The, the story's getting a little happier now. Um, <laughs> and it's a different moment in the history of gay expression. While Stowe is still a private man, it has become possible for him to think about and act upon his desire. In 1965 in Alaska, Stowe returned to the material from the Trobrian Islands and wrote a series of stories based on Trobrian myths. This was also a return to the ethnographic material he had collected as an aspiring anthropologist. And Stowe reads again the Malinowski that has been his imperfect guide to the place. However, now in Alaska, Stowe's approach to this material uh, is not that of the ethnographer, but rather he approaches it as a creative writer. And in this space, his identifications become more playful, less ridden with anxiety. Stowe also uses the Trobrian myth to work through questions of desire, social convention, and social exclusion. I turn in detail now to two of, Stro of Stowe's Trobrian stories, which I'll argue can be read as query workings of Trobrian myths. 
It's worth saying also that these stories, um, one of the reasons I'm looking at them in particular is they're, they're important parts of the National Library's holdings because they're largely unknown. Um, one of them was published, but it was, it was published in a fairly obscure anthology of Australian writing in the 1960s, so sort of remains buried there. And the second story I'll speak about, which is, um, it's Stowe's really his most explicitly homoerotic piece of writing was, was never published. Uh, so, you know, to read it, you've got to go and pull it up from the NLA manuscript collections and sit in, sit in the nice room. All right. So, let's start with um, De Konnick and the Ogre. Okay. De Konnickan is a cannibalistic ogre in Troprian mythology. Stowe first encountered De Konnickan in the writing of Malinowski, for whom, as Stowe well knew, the story of De Konnickan and his slaying by the hero Tadeva is an archetypal story for matrilineal culture, having something of the significance of the Oedipus myth in Western culture. Stowe's De Konnickan, however, differs significantly from Malinowski's, based instead on a version he took from local story Siam of Laluta. Unlike Malinowski, for whom De Konnickan was just an ogre, Siam of Laluta, this is a quote, from, uh, a quote from Stowe. This storyteller showed some sympathy for De Konnikin and regarded him as a human being who went wrong and became a hermit, rather than a supernatural being to be surmounted by Tadeva. Siam, by his manner rather than his words, convinced me that it is indeed a miserable thing to be a cannibal in a non-cannibal society. Stowe runs with this sympathy, recreating De Konnikin the cannibal as a social outcast and a figure of pathos and identification. In fact, Stowe gives De Konnikin Manakewo's love spell, and so we hear De Konnikin's longing and his loneliness, like Stowe would hear his own in the words of that spell. And just as a comparison, this is, this is the spell that uh, Stowe took down in the Trobriand Islands, and this is his creative reworking of it for the cannibal. Okay. It's too much to say that De Konnikin the cannibal is a figure for the homosexual. Uh, I don't want to say that Stowe is not as literal as that. But he is certainly a figure of sexual and social exclusion, plagued by socially unacceptable desire. As Stowe would state, what is most interesting for me is De Konnikin's conflict with public opinion. De Konnikin's ca cannibalistic hunger, in other words, is given as a social taboo rather than as a moral and ethical failing. And so in Stowe's story, De Konnikin's cannibalistic hunger cannot be separated from his love. When De Konnikin eats his favourite niece, he explains to his sister, who is also uh, the mother of the child, I ate her because she had a beautiful spirit, and now that spirit is inside me. His sister remarkably loved him twice as much because he was now doubly related to her. Very generous, I think. <laughs> Finally, when De Konnikin is overcome by the conventional hero to Deva, at the end of the tale, the meeting is written as a perfect homoerotic union. From among the trees of branching light, Tudava floated forward, the young hero. I am Tudava, he said in a voice like the singing of spirits in the land of sunset clouds. Deconican looked at Tudava with tears on his cheeks and his eyes wide and shining. My friend, he said, oh my friend. Joy and love filled him so that his body could hardly bear it because his voice sounded in his own ears like music. He thought that Tudava must understand him. He believed that he had grown beautiful because Tudava was beautiful, for Tudava was the most beautiful man he had ever seen in the world, from Mayawa to Dimdim. Oh, my friend, said De Konnikin, holding out his hands. My friend, my friend. Then Tudava's spear pierced through him and he fell. 
Stowe's rewriting of the story of de Konecken was also a disidentification with Malinowski. Stowe would state, Malinowski, I think, had no feeling for de Konecken, and he does not seem to have visited or ever even heard of de Konecken's house, the cave near Laluta from which he made his raids. I can at least claim to have sat in de Konecken's chair and admired the pitting coral that serves as his small house and examined his kitchen and sleeping apartment and discovered what no one had prepared me for, that these were paved with human teeth and skull fragments. There's no doubt one feels closer to a man when one has poked about a bit in his living quarters. Unlike Malinowski, Stowe identifies with de Konecken. He sits in his chair, pokes around in his kitchen, and in so doing, he turns Malinowski's story about matrilineal kinship in traditional societies into a story about what it's like to live with a desire that's socially unacceptable. Okay, so this is, this is story two. This one's pretty racy. <laughs> Kate Alighi is Stowe's most explicitly homoerotic story, and it was never published, probably because of its unmistakable homosexual content. In Trobrian mythology, Katalugi is an island occupied by fierce women of insatiable desire who trap men and use them sexually until they perish. Again, Stowe would first have heard of Katalugi and Malinowski, who in uh, Sexual Life of Savages transcribed an account of the island in this way. So this is um, Malinowski's tran transcription of, a, of an informant. There are many women there. When one has finished, another comes along. When they cannot have intercourse, they use the man's nose, his ears, his fingers, his toes. The man dies. Stowe's version of the myth takes this account of the island of Katalugi as its starting point. Two men find themselves stranded on the island of Katalugi where, quote, if any man comes, he was raped until he died. The men are raped and beaten and in their own words, used by the women, quote, like two green bananas. But in Stowe's retelling of the story, the men plot an escape by telling the women of another island where a fruit grows that will, quote, make a man stiff as a spear from morning till night. The women take them up on this because they think this sounds like a great idea. Uh, but when they get to this other island, basically what happens is the men turn on them and uh, beat them unconscious and escape. Once free, they live a calm and monastic life on the island until one day, you can imagine what's going to happen, one of them tries the fruit. And this is when the story takes its uh, gay turn, let's say. Okay. Friend, said to Billy, I have found the quaveka fruit. Sim Sim looked with uneasiness at his companion's face and at his yavi and answered nothing. Suddenly, Tabili tore off his yavi, revealing something amazing. I can't wait another instant, he said. Friend, I want push-push. Simsim was horrified. Your shame, he breathed. But Tabili leaped upon him, cramming the berries into his mouth, and Simsim swallowed, and his own yavi split in two. Friend, he cried. Oh, friend, me first. Ah, it's terrible to think of two men behaving in such a way, like idiots or little boys. But Kayla Mata was a pleasant place, and the Quaveka fruit was plentiful, and in every way you might say it was a very happy marriage. In an early handwritten draft of the story, Stowe includes a note explaining that a, a, 
Akakwanabu, this is the story's subtitle, is a scurrilous yarn where the narrator's imagination is invited to run riot. No doubt Stowe had heard about Katalugi and the Trobrians, but he comments also that he was not able to find any precise anecdote attached to the place while he was there. This version of the myth and its ending in particular are, I think, entirely Stowe's own. The happy and monogamous marriage between two men are too close to a Western gay fantasy, not to strongly suggest that it's Stowe's imagination that has been invited to run wild in this case. If Katalugi is Stowe's most direct homoerotic fantasy, it's also a fantasy about the sexual intrusions of women. And in this, I think it refers us back to the eyes under the floor. The chieftainess is, quote, a monstrously fat woman who lay under the thatch of her covered platform with her neck on an ebony headrest and her knees in the air. Stowe's homoerotic fantasy takes shape as an escape from the perceived sexual demands of women. I cannot, cried Sim Sim. You will, said the chieftainess's bodyguard. I'm going to return to this point uh, right at the end. I want to finish, though, with some brief comments on how to read Stowe's sexuality and what it means to, to sort of search out the homosexual content um, or the kind of intimate content in the life and work of this notoriously private man. Stowe never came out. Although his sexuality was known among his friends, he remained fairly reticent about speaking of it. His mother never knew that he was gay and it's, unlike, and it's likely that Stowe kept his sexuality from much of his Geraldton world. Stowe would also never include explicitly homosexual content in his published writings, restricting himself to suggestion, innuendo, and coded communication. But I think it's simplistic to read Stowe's reticence around questions of sexuality, his insistence on privacy as merely a censoring of homosexual content, particularly because the issue of privacy in and of itself and independent of sexual experience is so much at issue for Stowe in his experience in the Trobrians. In an interview from later in his life, Stowe made the comment, gossip made me a homosexual before I was one. Something which suggests, I think, that homosexual identity was something that Stowe felt was imposed on him from the outside, rather than something inherent or representative of his authentic self. This is not to say that Stowe's main sexual attachments were not to men, undoubtedly they were. But it does suggest that something about gay identity as it emerged in the second half of the 20th century didn't ring true to Stowe. The comment is certainly a long way from the born that way narrative of homosexuality. I want to finish with the character of Perry from The Girl Green as Elderflower, Stowe's novel about a man recovering from a mysterious breakdown in the tropics in Suffolk. This is another one of Stowe's novel that was um, based very closely on his own experience. Perry is a queer who escapes our grasp and in this sense captures something of the way that Stowe's sexuality evades simple explanation. I fancy that blue-eyed power boy, Perry says to his friend Claire, but then a few pages later that he'll probably marry a Jewish girl. To Claire's protestations, this is his friend speaking. From the way you've been talking, I didn't, see, I didn't foresee marriage for you. Perry replies, for a student of the science of man, there are an awful lot of books, old Claire, that have been closed to you. Anthropology, the science of man, is invoked here as enabling us to think beyond a simple heterosexual homosexual binary. 
In the final pages of the novel, Perry writes a letter that mirrors very closely a letter that Stowe himself sent to his good friend Janine Jeffers about an encounter with uh, an, Eskimo, an Eskimo woman in Alaska. That's, uh, that's Stowe's words, not mine. Tonight I was assaulted in a bar the first time. It happened like this. There's an Eskimo woman I've got to know slightly called Dolores Suvik who became very drunk because a man who had lost a bar bet brought every man and woman of us 17 bottles of beer. So Lolita started making conversation along the lines of, I know what you want, all you men are the same. You just want to get up my rectum. Now, before you make a fool of yourself in some anthropological journey, I want to point out that English isn't her first language. Well, she started doing an Eskimo war dance, which was a solitary business and got in no one's way. But then she fancied something on the jukebox and wanted to dance with me. Seeing how drunk she was, I clung for dear life to the bar rail. And giving up at last, she sat down and the next stool and started growling, God damn white man. Then she said, God damn white man, are you queer or something? To this I made what I think is quite, be quite the best repartee of my life. Namely, only for you, baby. She punched my nose and made it bleed. Here, like in Summer Stowe's Trobrian writing, queer desire is thrown into relief against the perceived sexual demands of the indigenous woman anthropological subject. Only for you, says Perry to Dolores. Here, however, unlike in Catalugi or in the writings in Stowe's diary, the woman is allowed to reply, punching Perry in the nose. I like this ending, and so I'm going to leave it there. Ellen. That, awesome. Um, there's time for questions, of course. Um, what have we got? Any questions from the audience? Our microphones are coming down. If you can wait for the microphones, raise your hand and a microphone will be whisked to you. I'd like to know whether after all of your research yep. you like him more or less <laughs> or you feel sort of drawn into making him more of a saint than he's been seen before, or how has it yeah. changed your view? Um, when I started the research, I think um, I, I started with the diary and some... I started with two things, with the diary and some letters uh, from late in his life when he's an old man. And both of those things seemed very kind of poignant and sad to me. Um, and I thought this is going to be really hard and really depressing. And I guess then as I, I kept working, uh, things became lighter. You know, there were, there were kind of hard, hard moments in his life and also, also easy moments in his life. So that, that doesn't really answer your question. Um, I like him. Yeah, he's, he's all right. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I've got a follow-up question, yeah. which is that we've seen little flashes of, tiny flashes occasionally of humour. Uh, yeah. When did that start appearing? When he stopped being a, yeah. um, a, 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 a defiantly non-introspective 24-year-old or, or was it always yeah. there? Um, I don't think there's much humour into the islands at all. That's a very earnest novel, um, if anyone's read it. I think it probably starts around, uh, yeah, after his breakdown, like around 1965. Like, obviously, um, the, those Trobrian stories are funny, 
you know, so that's in 1965. Um, and this is, this is funny. This, you know, this, this, the girl green as elderflower is, is funny. Yeah, I mean, I would, one thing he said in interviews is that after the breakdown in the Tropian Islands, he never wrote in the same way again. He saw it very much as a, as a, um, as a fundamental break in his life that changed, you know, who he was, how he operated in the world, and, and how he wrote. And uh, I think probably one thing that changes is um, he becomes a little more humorous after that. Yeah, that's a good question, thanks. I guess I'm curious too, it, I mean, visitants can be read very much as a way of explaining his experiences, mm. but given how late it was written, mm. it could also be read as a way of wanting to provide a narrative around it yeah. for the outside world and whether you had any comment on that. Mm. That's, a, that's, a, that's a really interesting question. So the question is sort of, do we read what he's doing uh, in his writings about the Trobriand Islands as about explaining something to himself or explaining something to the world, perhaps so people will stop hassling about him about it? Um, I don't know. That's, it's, it's, it's an interesting question, though, isn't it? Because it changes, it, it changes the way you read the novel. But, uh, I mean, I guess I would say it's, it's doing both. And these things are always both things. You know, as we explain ourselves to ourselves, we're also trying to explain ourselves to the world. So, yeah, perhaps, perhaps those two things together. Yeah. Um, noting, as you say, his insistence on privacy, yeah. his uneasiness with surveillance, and also his comparison that you drew with Malinowski about how much you find out about someone poking around his things. Yeah. I'm interested in your relationship to the project you undertook here, whether you felt a sense of sort of leeriness, maybe, if I yeah. can put it that way, when you were going yeah. through his things, or whether it was kind of more of a yeah. know, anthropological coldness. You mean, yeah, so, so how, how do I feel about poking around yeah. in, um, in Randolph Stowe's private life? That, yeah, exactly, someone <laughs> who's so private as well. I know, it's, it's a question, isn't it? And I guess I don't mean it in a sort of ethical yeah. way, I don't think there's any questions yeah. about that, but just whether you felt the kind of... You know. It's it's an interesting question. Stowe is a funny one because on the one hand, you know, on the one hand he is really private and there are things that he just won't speak of. And yet at the same time, most of his work is extremely autobiographical. So you feel in this work there's this um, there's a kind of double thing going on where on the one hand he wants to um, present his life to the world and be seen. And on the other hand, he wants to hide. He writes um, a number of poems, for example, that he calls uh, a number of love poems. That they're, they're, they're poems that are kind of addressed to, to lovers that he's had. But he uses a kind of I don't know, allegorical, mythic kind of thing to try and hide what the poem is actually about. And the result of that is that the poems are really quite incomprehensible. But you can see that double gesture there where he both wants to kind of express his feelings and express his desire, and he also, at the same time, uh, wants to cover over it and doesn't want anyone to see it. So uh, I, I don't know if that answers your question, but except to say that there is, there's something very complicated going on with Stowe, with the whole thing, with this whole question of privacy. Yeah, yeah. Apropos your reply, yeah. how did Randolph Stowe's papers end up in the National Library? 
Did he keep uh, keep them? Did he donate them? I, I wonder if a librarian would be a better place okay, to answer this than me. The, the librarian <laughs> can probably answer that one. To your, to your Look, there was, it's, not a, it's not a large collection, um, as Ellen knows, and the material that Ellen's using now came into the library, um, it was probably about 2009 or 2010, so after his death and via his sister. So I guess the point is he had kept it. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, when you and I were talking earlier, mm. Ellen, you were saying clearly he returns to it. It's yeah. quite obvious he's going back to the archive. So he's kept it at the house in Suffolk. Um, clearly didn't destroy it. Lots yeah. of people might have. Um, and in fact, his sister packaged up and, uh, and sent it on to the library after he died. So it wasn't a direct relationship. But he, it's interesting to think about what his intentions were about posterity for mm. it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the other thing I would say about that is the archive is, um, it's inconsistent across his life. So there is quite a lot of material in the Trobriand um, period. There's enough to, to kind of reconstruct the story as I, I have today. Um, but there's nowhere near that much material on other periods in his life. This is the period in his life that he keeps the most material from. Uh, and in part, I think, because it was a, a period in time that he, he kind of grappled with for his life, he keeps he keeps returning to that material. He uses it to write um, novels based on that time. So it's sort of like the material that I use to try to reconstruct Stowe's time in the Trobrians is the same material that he would use to try to make sense of that time in his creative writing. So there's there's something there's something really interesting to me about that and about and about this particular archive. Yeah. Can I ask a question while the rest of you are thinking of one? Ellen asked when I started to cast a um, anthropology eye over it, so I was going yeah. back to my anthropology and thinking about it. And I was thinking that the Malinowski, of course, is a the you know often the, the father of anthropology, but it's changed a lot by the time he gets there. So anthropology is looking at different questions, mm -hmm. and but he yeah. uh, Stowe returns to the myth, the collecting of myth and story yeah. in a Malinowski type way, and doesn't look to the things like well, Margaret Reed's doing the yeah. going up in Samara and other things are happening yeah. at the time. It's, is he setting? And maybe that's why he left anthropology. He set it very much in that earlier period. Yeah. Well, Stowe's really interested in in myths and traditional stories. I, I guess uh, perhaps because he's a writer. And he remains he remains interested in in myths and myths traditional myths and the idea of the traditional society um, for all of his life. But what happens is he sort of decides that he decides two things. Firstly, that psychologically he can't handle being an anthropologist. But secondly, that this is not his culture. You know, he, he comments in interviews, he says, I had these moments where I was, you know, talking to these very interesting and amiable people in the Trobrians, and I would think to myself, why am I collecting the kind of the stories and, and the myths and the spells of these people? I, I should be thinking about my own, my own people. And so Stowe's solution to that then is to go back to what he considers basically his ancestral homeland, which is Suffolk in England. So Stowe, Stowe grew up in Australia, in Geraldton, but he, he traces his family back, back to Suffolk. 
And he goes and lives in Suffolk and he ends up being very interested in kind of um, like medieval stories from that region. And this novel, The Girl Green as Elderflower, is, is really interesting because um, he uses, he does a hot, these kind of modern reworkings of Suffolk stories in a similar way, I guess, to, to what I've shown he does with Trobrian stories. He does that with stories from Suffolk um, in a novel that's also about uh, a man recovering from a breakdown in the tropics. So, yeah, so... So he remains interested in that kind of um, anthropological work, but he, he, he sort of thinks about it in relation to what, what he considers his own people, I guess. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Any last questions? Well, in that case, thank you all very much over there, uh, and I hope you'll um, join us upstairs to continue the conversation in the foyer. Over the next few months, we've got a full house of fellows and we'll be hosting their presentations. Their field of interests are vast and diverse as the collections we hold. Next week, we're delighted to have Dr Bess Moylan presenting and Bess has been exploring how to catalogue historical maps featuring words from both Aboriginal languages and English. And I hope you can join us for what I'm sure will be another interesting discussion. But now, join me in thanking Ellen for what was really a fascinating talk. Thanks, Ellen. <laughs>